Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. To ask you to grab a copy of the Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. As we continue walking through the book of 1 Samuel, the story of the transition of God's people, Israel, from this period of judges where there was no real centralized government, and these judges would sort of go from town to town and, uh, and govern, really, uh, settle disputes and uh, make announcements and things like that. The transition from the period of judges to the period of kings, the, the monarchy, uh, that's the story, historically speaking, that this book is telling. And we come to the pivotal moment in that story in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. So the first seven chapters you could summarize as sort of the story of Samuel, at least the story of his sort of ascension to leadership uh, as uh, really the last judge of Israel, also prophet and priest. So he had kind of multiple offices that he filled for the people of Israel. And at the end of chapter 7, we have this summary of uh, Samuel's uh, ministry or his, his leadership among the people. If you look there at, at verse 15 of chapter 7, you see this little just summary paragraph. It says, Samuel judged Israel. That means he just acted as their judge, their leader, their governor, so to speak. He judged Israel all the days of his life. He went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, different regions throughout uh, the land. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So a lot of time passes in that little paragraph. And so Samuel was recognized as a prophet. His word was established. We had the drama in chapters uh, Five and four through six of Israel going to battle, taking the ark, losing the ark to the Philistines, and the journey that the ark took to make it back to Israel. And then in chapter seven, Samuel led the people of Israel in repentance. All right, let's turn back to the Lord, let's do away with our false gods, let's repent of our sin and trust in Him and serve Him only. And so it told us toward the end of that chapter that there was an extended season of peace because of Samuel's leadership and the repentance of the people of Israel. But things are changing. When we come to chapter 8, the uh, story is going to, if you will, turn to the next uh, chapter, literally, in, its, in what, what's happening here. And so you've had Samuel, he's had his leadership, he's led the people in this season of peace and prosperity, and... Things are about to change, and so we come to the next portion of the story. The first thing we learn in chapter 8 is a bit of a disappointing detail. With all that we've come to learn about Samuel and the way we've respected his leadership, we learn that his sons are not so great. Look with me at the first three verses of chapter 8. When Samuel became old... He made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, 
and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now, this is a little surprising, kind of a disappointing uh, turn in the story, because as much as we've come to respect Samuel and appreciate his godliness, you would hope that he would have a godly uh, child to pass things on to. Now, for one thing, surprise, surprise, Samuel apparently is married and has had children. The, the story to this point has not told us about that. We recognize that lots of time had passed between verses 15 and 17 of chapter 7. So there's certainly opportunity for those things to happen. So he's had sons, he's raised sons, and as he's getting older and can't really maybe keep up with the responsibility of judging all of Israel, he has this idea to appoint his sons. And it says that they're serving in Beersheba, which is the town to the far south of Israel. So maybe it's a little bit of an experiment to see how they'd handle it with one town. I don't know. But it doesn't go very well. Because it tells us they, were, they did not walk in Samuel's ways. They turned aside after gain. So they used the position of leadership that, that Samuel had entrusted to them for selfish gain. And they perverted justice and accepted bribes. And it, it really is kind of reminiscent of Eli, isn't it? Eli was the judge before Samuel. And he was generally a righteous man. But he had these sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were a total wreck. They were the priests of Israel, serving as the priests, but making a total mockery of that ministry and that important role, perverting justice, um, violating women, all manner of terrible things, stealing from God as people were coming to make their offerings. And so it sounds just a little too familiar. A righteous man with these sons who just do not follow in his ways. And I think there's a couple of things maybe we could learn from this, like lessons to, to draw. The first thing is that is just a helpful reminder that godly parents don't guarantee godly children. Just because someone faithfully follows the Lord, has children, raises children, there is no guarantee, humanly speaking, that their children are going to faithfully walk with the Lord. Because you would think, well, Samuel, like every example that we've seen from him in the first seven chapters of this book are, are glowing. I mean, he's following the ways of God. He's learning how to hear his voice. He's faithfully communicating God's word to the people. He's leading the people to repent. So if anybody's going to have godly children, surely it would be Samuel. And yet his sons did not walk in his ways, which I think you can take to mean they didn't walk in the Lord's ways. They did not follow God at all. And there's no word of judgment or disapproval of Samuel here, which there was of Eli, remember? God sent a prophet to Eli to say, because of the wickedness of your sons and because you have fattened yourselves on the offering of the Lord, kind of even seeing Eli's complicit in that, that he would remove his mantle of leadership. But there's no word of that here about Samuel. So we have no condemnation so to speak, no judgment spoken about Samuel regarding the wickedness of his son. So we, we draw the conclusion, I think, that Samuel is a godly, faithful man, probably did the best he, could, he knew how to do with his children, and they simply walked away. And so I think there's a good reminder for us here that no parent 
is ultimately responsible before God for the salvation of his children. So if you have raised kids who are grown and aren't walking with the Lord, on the one hand, don't despair. Because for one thing, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's, it's the work of God. So it doesn't necessarily mean I failed as a parent. And I think we go there very quickly when our children are disobedient or they don't walk in the ways of God as they get older. We, we, we think to ourselves, I ruined it. I messed this up. And I think the story of Samuel and his sons offers a word of comfort here. Like there's more at play. Godly parents don't guarantee godly children. But I think a second lesson that we can gain from this is, on the flip side of that coin, the importance of training up our children in the ways of God. While there's no guarantee that if we like, do the right things, we're going to, voila, spit out this perfect kid, right? So parenting is not a formula. Follow A plus B plus C equals perfectly righteous God-loving child. Like, it's not necessarily that simple. However, it is very important for Christian parents to pass on the faith and the ways of God to their children. We're responsible to do that. And so I think it's important for us just to take as a, as a kind of secondary application here, just a reminder of the importance for parents to raise their children in the ways of God. Teach them the gospel. Teach the importance. Teach them the importance of involvement in the church. Uh, read the the Bible with them. Pray with them. Right as much as we can, faithfully, persistently over time, lead our children to the Lord, and pray and plead with God to do the work that only He can do in the heart of a human being, and lead them to Himself. So that's the first thing we learn is that Samuel's sons have not walked in his ways. And so that is not a great solution for the next generation of leadership, right? So we've got a problem. We've got a leadership vacuum in Israel because the one that's been this faithful, godly leader for a number of years is old and is not able to continue. And so we've got to pass the leadership on to the next generation. But the next generation, at least of Samuel's children, are not qualified, not fit. To lead, So what are we going to do? Well, the elders of Israel recognize the problem. They grow impatient with Samuel, and so they come up with a solution. Although it's not a great solution, as we'll find. And in fact, they come to Samuel and make a request that I find rather rebellious. It's a rebellious request. Look at verses 4 through 9. Let me read these for you. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. So he's at home. They've come to his home in Ramah. And said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. A little blunt truth. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. 
Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So the solution that the Israelite elders come up with kind of resembles chapter 4 where they were going into battle and things weren't going too well. These same elders got together and came up with the bright idea of parading the Ark of the Covenant around like a good luck charm. Right? That was their solution then. Well, if we want to win this battle, we've got to drag the ark out into the, into the battlefield. And that didn't go so well for them, did it? Some 30,000 soldiers died. The ark was captured. They were decimated. So similarly to that strategy, they go, all right, there's a leadership vacuum. Samuel can't continue judging. His sons are not fit to judge. So here's what we need. We need a king catch this, just like all the nations around us. We need a king. Now, I would say that the desire for a king itself is not a bad thing. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 17, God had actually indicated to the people through Moses that a day would come when they would ask for a king and he would give it. Then he put some some stipulations in place about who the king needed to be and what kind of man he needed to be and how he needed to honor the Lord. But he had said long ago, that a day would come when he would appoint a king for them. So I don't think that the request for a king is itself a bad thing. But Samuel regards this this request as wicked. In verse 6, he says, it says, but the thing displeased Samuel. The Hebrew is actually stronger, something more like the thing was evil in Samuel's eyes. So it's not merely personal offense, although there probably was that. Right? They come to him and say, listen, you're old, your kids are useless, we need a king. Right? So there probably is some personal offense to that. Like, I have led you faithfully for all these years, and this is the thanks I get. I'm sure that Samuel feels that way at some level. But it's deeper than that. He sees wickedness. He sees evil in the request of the Israelite elders for a king, which raises the question, what's so bad? about their desire for a king. What makes the request rebellious is the heart behind it. Not the request itself, hey, we'd like a king, but the reasons, the motivations that lead them to seek a king for themselves. I can see at least two, at least two motivations here uh, that lead them to seek out a king. Number one, they don't trust God. Just like chapter 4, when the battle was going badly, they didn't trust God. They came up with a superstitious way to like invoke God's help against their enemies. But there was no humble seeking after God or praying or asking him what they should do or saying, we can't do anything, deliver us. And they do the same kind of thing here. They recognize that Samuel's, Samuel's aging and his sons aren't the answer. Who is going to lead us? How is God going to meet our need? And instead of turning to God in prayer, like they did in chapter 7 after the ark had returned and Samuel led them in repentance, they come up with their own solution and insist that God get behind it. So they've already talked, right? The, The elders come to Samuel as a unit. They've already been meeting and they've decided what we need is a king. Let's go demand Samuel give us a king. And so they go to Samuel at home, knock on his door. Samuel walks out, probably wearing his pajamas, opens his door. What's up? 
you're old, your kids are lame, we need a king, right? God needs to get behind our plan. J.D. Greer says it would be so much easier to trust God if we could control him. But we cannot, and so we have a list of requirements that we demand in addition to God. We will follow him, but we have some stipulations as well. I think sometimes we can be a little bit like that. We want God to do what we want him to do. I will follow God so long as he fill in the blank, whatever that thing is that you require to be fulfilled or to be happy or whatever it is. I'll follow you, Lord, but I need you to get me the job that I've been hoping for. Or I'll follow you, Lord, but I need you to make sure I get married by a certain age. Or I'll follow you, Lord, but I've got my plans already worked out. I just need your help to bring them about. That's kind of how we approach God sometimes. That's exactly what the Israelites do right here. We've got the plan. We need a king, so let's just tell Samuel, hey, you're done, we need a king, and he has to talk to God and tell him to get behind it, all right? And so they don't trust God to meet their needs, which I think is the basic uh, reason, or one of the basic reasons for their request for a king. They just don't trust God. Number two, they want to be like the world. That phrase is key in verse 5. Give us a king to judge us like all the nations. The people's primary desire seems to be to mimic the pagan nations around them. Perhaps they see these great military powers and they recognize, of course, the difficulty that they've had in fending off the Philistines and the Ammonites and all these things. And so maybe they say, well, if we have a king like they do, who will build our military like they have, we'll make ourselves a stronger nation. We'll make ourselves a more formidable presence in the world, if you will. God has called Israel to be holy, which means set apart for his purposes. He's called them to be distinct from the world. And here are Israel's elders saying, in effect, We're tired of being so different. We want to be like everyone else. Have you ever had a thought like that? I'm tired of being different because of my faith. I'm ready to blend in with the world. I want to have what everyone else has, right? I don't want to live within the same boundaries that I've been living in. I want the same sort of freedom that people who don't know the Lord seem to have or whatever it is. Tired of the awkward conversations that come when people ask me about my faith. It'd be much easier to just not be different. I'll just watch what they watch, drink what they drink, go where they go, right? Spend my time the way they spend their time, value what they value. It'd be so much easier. That's kind of what Israel's doing here. Desire to be like the world can easily lead us into rebellion against God. To make compromises that are dishonoring to him and harmful to ourselves. Just want to be like everyone else. So they don't trust God and they want to be like the world around them. Which is not that dissimilar from the way that we often live. We don't really trust God with our needs. We don't really believe that he's going to come through for us in the right way. 
So we come with our own plans and ideas, and we just say, hey, God, will you get on my page? Will you get on my timeline? And sometimes the call to be different and holy and distinct from the world just feels so heavy and weird and hard that it'd just be easier if we could just, let's just be like everybody else. Let's just blend in. The people of God are to be distinct, are to be holy, because he is holy, and we are to represent him in the world. So Samuel takes not just personal offense, but he sees wickedness. He sees maybe behind the request, these rebellious intentions, and so he goes to God. So it tells us he was displeased, the thing displeased Samuel, and so he prayed to the Lord. And listen to what God says to him. The Lord says, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, which is surprising in itself. God doesn't say, go and tell them why they're wrong. Go and tell them that I refuse to grant their request because of their rebellious hearts. He says, give them what they want. Obey the voice of the people. Because they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That's what's at the heart of this. This rebellion, this distrust of God, this desire to be like the nations, just give us a king to lead us, to rule over us, just like all the nations around us. At the root of it, God's people are rejecting God's authority. We don't want God to rule us. So God kind of gives Samuel a little bit of, a, of comfort here. It's not you they're rejecting. It's me. They have rejected me from being king over them. And they're looking for leadership and comfort and security in a political, earthly leader. And then he says, you know, this is what they've been doing all along. From the day that I led them out of slavery in Egypt till now. They've rebelled, they've turned away, and they're continuing to do that, and they're doing the same. So he says to Samuel, you're, see, you're just getting a taste of what I've seen from the, these people all along, for generations. You know the cycle throughout the Old Testament, it's called the cycle of apostasy, the cycle where the people of God are uh, rebelling and sinning and turning to other gods, and so God comes to them in judgment and discipline puts pressure on them, gives them hardship, maybe through some foreign enemy or whatever. And, and the people go, oh, wow, this is terrible. We need to turn back to God. And so they repent, right? Then they cry out, Lord, please help us. We'll come back to you. We'll get rid of our foreign gods. So God delivers them, right? He puts them in a new land. He gives them a new leader. He gives them a new, uh, a new heart and things are, things are better, right? And then now that they're at peace, what starts to happen again? We're back to worshiping foreign gods and forgetting about God and we do our own thing. And the cycle just keeps going. That's the history of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Just over and over. They're holding it up back there. Cycle of apostasy. There it is. So just over and over and over. But the truth is, it ain't just Israel. It's Christians too. We do the same thing in our own lives. We st- we, things are going okay, so we drift. And when we drift... God disciplines us. And when we get disciplined, maybe we'll remember, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not really, you know, honoring God as I should. I'm not giving God the central place in my life like I should give him. And so we pray and we confess and we ask for his help. And so he puts us back in right standing and everything's good for a while. 
And then we start to drift. This is what fallen people do because we don't just need a new leader. We don't just need a new system. We don't just need a new mechanism. We need a new heart. Our heart is broken. Our heart is bent toward ourselves and toward sin. And unless God gives us a new heart, we cannot change. That cycle will perpetuate itself. The good news of the gospel is that that's exactly what Christ has come to do, to change our hearts, to give us new life where there was death, to open our eyes where we were blind. And so he can miraculously, supernaturally incline our hearts toward himself and toward his ways. So he sends Samuel back to the people with a solemn warning. And we'll see that warning in verses 10 through 18. So he says, obey their voice, but tell them what it's going to be like. (laughs) Let them know what they're asking for. Look at verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will rule over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. In that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, a lot of that description is just the basic trappings of a monarchy. A lot of that is just, if you want a king, here's how it works. If you want this guy to be like a military leader and fight your battles for you, which they say down in verse 20, that he may, uh, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. If you want him to fight your battles for you, guess what? He's going to have to do a draft. Right? He's going to have to take your sons and equip them for battle. He's going to have to put your daughters to work and your sons to work building weapons of war. Right? And so that there's, we're going to have to, if you're going to train a military, guess what? That takes resources, that takes time, that takes people. So that's what it's going to be like. We're going to have, have professional manufacturing of war materials. There's going to be taxes because you're going to have to give some of your crops and your flocks to him for his purposes. So some of this is just. If you want a king, this is what it looks like. There's a, there's a heavy cost to have a king. But then some of it, like verses 14 through 17, are really abuses that the king would, perpetu- excuse me, would perpetrate on his people. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and give them to his servants. So like kind of kickbacks for his high officials, right? Overtaxation, give, taking more than they really owe. So there's going to be corruption that comes along with a king. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? So he likens their relationship to the king as slavery. You will be his slaves. You will be slaves to the king you've chosen for yourselves. I like that he reminds them of that. This is your, this is what you're asking for. This is your doing. 
God assures them they will regret this decision and cry out in anguish and provides a somber warning. In that day, I will not answer you. There is mercy and a warning. God is saying, is this really what you want? It's going to go badly. It's going to be hard. If you reject me as your king and choose your own system and your own way, this is what it's going to be like. And when you cry out to me because it's too much, I'm not going to hear you. And there's wisdom in listening to a warning. But the people don't listen to the warning. Verse 19, we'll see the resolution of the people and Yahweh's reluctant agreement to give them what they want. Look at verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So, all right, it'll be done. Go back home. Your request has been granted. So determined are the people in this desire, they won't listen to such a severe warning. They still insist, no, there shall be a king over us. And their vision of a king is that of a strong military leader who's going to govern the people and overpower their political enemies. That's what they have in mind, because that's what they see the kings of the pagan nations around them doing, just conquering, just overcoming people and building their empire. Seems like that's what they want. So God acquiesces to their request. He gives them what they want. He instructs Samuel to listen to their voice and make them a king. And so in a strange, perverted reversal of role, the people ignore God's demands and God listens to them and grants them what they want. And I cannot help but see here a judicial giving over to their unrighteous desires The Apostle Paul speaks in Romans 1 of God operating in this way when sinners insist on their way. In Romans 1.26, he says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, to the lusts of their flesh, and on and on it goes. So there is a, if this is what you want, if this is really what you want, you can have it. And... You want a king? Okay, but you're going to be a slave. You ever heard someone say, be careful what you wish for? When I was younger, my mom used to say to me, be careful what you pray for because you just might get it. Because we usually pray, sometimes we can be guilty of praying for things that are really not in our best interest. They're really just selfish. Just something we think would be great, but we haven't really thought it through. We don't really trust God to give us what we need. And so the things that we pray for, Lord, please give me this thing that I really want. Like, if you get it, it might actually be good for you. It might be harmful to you. And so God might be merciful to you in not answering that prayer. Like the old Garth Brooks song, right? Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Anyway, um, so be careful what you pray for because you just might get it. Sometimes God will give you what you insist 
as discipline. Okay, if, that, if you want that so badly, here it is. That, that's the story, right? So the story is the people of Israel have now insisted that God give them a king. God's going to give them what they want. And so we're going we're to get to meet that king uh, in chapter 9, which will be exciting. Um, uh, so that, that's what's going on in the story. Let me give a, a couple of ways that I think that Christians are prone to do the same thing. Are prone to essentially say, give us a king. There will be a king over us in different ways. One is going to be more like kind of individually ways that an individual Christian might, might think or be tempted. And, and another will be more corporate, like ways that as a church we may be tempted to do this. So the first of those is, we might not say give us a king, but we might say give us a president. Give us a Supreme Court justice. Give us a governor. I think if your like, social media feed is anything like mine, you can see a lot of Christians panicking about the decline of morality and religious liberty in American society and urging one another to action, right? Call your senators, get to the voting booth, post your opinion all over social media, right? That kind of thing. Christians have tended, at least since the moral majority of the early 80s, to elevate the importance of American political activism as the way to usher in a sort of Christian American utopia. If we just get the right people in office, the right policies in place, kind of a heaven-on-earth society will result. And so the, 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 the Christian uh, response to the things we see around us can often be, give us a fill-in-the-blank, a president, a justice, a law, right? And so we look to political activism or, or uh, just laws and things like that as as the answer to our problems, which is just what the people of Israel did, right? They looked at a problem, a legitimate vacuum of leadership in their nation, and they came up with a plan, and then they went to God and said, give us this. And I think Christians can be guilty of that. And I'm not minimizing the importance of living as a citizen of this earthly kingdom in a, in a good way, in a responsible way. I think there are things that we're called to do uh, because of where, where we live, where God has placed us. And we do have a responsibility to speak for justice and truth and work for justice because that's what God does, right? He cares about justice and the oppressed and all that. But there can be a point where we elevate the importance of that realm, this sort of civil, uh, political world as the most important <laughs> aspect of life. And I think we've got to be careful that in that we aren't really ultimately saying to God, we don't really want you to lead us. We want this person or this policy or this system of government or whatever it is to lead us. It's a bit like Israel demanding God's appointed leader step aside so that a king like all the other nations can provide security and prosperity for them. I think we've got to be careful with that. And that's one way that I think Christians in America can tend toward give us our way, give us our system, give us our person. Another way, and I think this is more directed at the church and churches, so this is more a corporate application. A church might say, not give us a king, but give us a CEO or give us a successful business model. 
that we can pattern our church after. And that's the way we'll see God move and work and we'll reach people and on it goes. I can't tell you, as a pastor, I cannot tell you how many emails and Facebook notices and things like that I get from church growth companies that have uh, marketing strategies and leadership training and techniques to increase giving in your church and on and on and on the list goes. Somewhere I'm listed as a pastor and so I'm targeted with all of these advertisements for various companies offering their services. You want a great church? You got to follow this program. You got to follow these steps. You got to use this disciple training tool. You've got to use these words when you're asking people to give to your church, right? And that will inspire people. So, I mean, just like on and on it goes. You want to see sustained growth in your church? Bob's church went from 50 to 5,000 in a year. You follow these steps. I mean, that, that is all the time I'm getting stuff like that as a pastor. And it, it's, it would be funny if it weren't so sad because churches are falling for this stuff, hook, line, and sinker. You don't have to look very far to see evangelical churches that have dived headlong into the world of business strategies and techniques, fashioning their, themselves after companies that have been successful. Sanctuaries styled after concert halls, technologies to rival top performance venues, bands populated by professional musicians, sermons that resemble a stand-up comedy routine more than the bold heralding of God's word. It's everywhere. Jesus is building his kingdom, and the realm of his kingly authority is in the church. Local churches are kingdom embassies where his authority is recognized, his commands are lived out, and his people conduct their lives as kingdom citizens. We're citizens of his kingdom before we're citizens of an earthly kingdom. And we forget that at times. How does Jesus exercise his authority in the church? Preaching of his word, in season and out of season. Making disciples of all nations. Baptizing those who repent and trust in Christ regularly observing the Lord's Supper, welcoming members in, seeing members out, faithfully stewarding one another's Christian walk and witness, gathering weekly for worship and prayer. There's nothing flashy or impressive about any of that. But these are the simple, wonderful tasks that God has commanded his church to carry out and that he promises he will bless So if you want to be faithful, you want to be successful as a church, you don't need to look to Fortune 500 companies to figure out how they grew so big or made so much money or have such a successful leadership culture. You need to look to God's word and faithfully do what he calls churches to do. And it's simple. It's not impressive. It's just faithful representing of Christ and his word. So rather than give us a CEO, give us a successful business model, we should say, give us Christ as king and let us live as kingdom people under his authority in the local church. So I'll conclude with with this thought. Don't miss God's mercy and wisdom, even in response to the selfish rebellion of his people. They reject him as their authority and demand a king. They don't trust him to provide for them, insist on their way. They express a desire to be like the pagan nations around them. 
and God grants their request. Yes, he grants it as a sort of discipline that they might learn to trust his ways and his time. But nevertheless, he uses their rebellious request as the occasion to lead Israel into the period of kings, which is no accident. This is God's plan all along, that there would be a kingship, a monarchy in Israel through which he would establish a covenant with David, the greatest king of Israel, that there would be someone on his throne who would reign forever. And the king who would come from David's family, who would reign on the throne over God's people forever, would be the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth had been given. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 18 to his disciples? All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, therefore go. That's where the Great Commission begins. And he would promise his presence with his people to the very end of the age. So the kingship in Israel is a necessary step in God's unfolding plan of redemption. If he's going to save his people, he's going to save them through a king who would come in the form of a man and live and die and rise in their place. And that king would be promised to the throne of David. And David can't be king until he's anointed king by Samuel, which is all coming up within this book. Yet this king would face the very same rejection from his people that Yahweh faced in 1 Samuel 8. This king would stand before a raving crowd declaring, we have no king but Caesar in John 19 verse 15. And he would be delivered to be crucified. And he would be adorned with a mocking robe of royalty and a crown twisted together from thorns. And above him on a cross would hang a sign written in sarcastic derision, the king of the Jews. This is the king that God is going to send. This is the king that God is establishing all of this, this monarchy in Israel, even working through the rebellion and obstinacy of his people to put them in a position to welcome the king of kings when he comes. And that king went to the cross for our sins. And that king suffered for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we might come to him in faith, repent of our sins, trust in him for salvation, and live under his authority. That famous verse in Romans chapter 10 that people always say, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know what Lord means? King. Jesus is king. And if you believe in his death and resurrection for your sins and you confess he is your king and you live under his authority, you'll be saved. That's the good news that we have and that's the the glimpse of the gospel hope that we see even amidst the rebellion and selfishness of the people of God in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let's pray.